gonna hurt you. Stay away from me! Wendy. Stay away! Darling, light of my life. I'm not gonna hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains in. Hello and welcome to 80s Movie Montage. This is Derek. And this is Anna. And I hear Jack saying that he's not going to hurt her, but I don't necessarily believe him. Nor do I. He sounds pretty upset. He sounds like he might be about to bash her brains in. Right the fuck in. Right the fuck in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Anyways... (laughs) So The Shining. Yeah, The Shining. Wow. <laughs> Just uh, a little different from some of the movies that we've covered. Yes. Turns because out. Because we are entering Halloween season. Yeah. Which is awesome. But I mean, we love it. Yeah. It's a different, much different movie from what we've uh, covered so far, though. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. It is an entirely different kind of film. I mean, we have not yet done horror. Pretty much everything we've done has been lighter fare. I mean, even uh, even Heather's, which definitely had a, a dark a comedy. Dark, That's yeah. as much as you can say for it. Yeah. It's not horror. I mean, it se. had a higher body count than The Shining. This is true. Yeah. yeah. Well, like in real time. But it was fun. Yes. Yeah. Fun-ish. Fun is not necessarily the word I would use to Big describe fun. The Shining. The Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know the band from Heather's? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, No, I wouldn't say The Shining is a fun film. No. Um, Maybe if you're a psychopath, but... It's enjoyable. It's enjoyable. Okay, so let's... uh, (laughs) let's, How about we dive into it? Let's do it. Let's talk about this movie. (laughs) So this came out in 1980, so we just got it. Just made it. Just made it. And... So let's see here. We've done a couple of these at this point where we have discussed films that were adapted from novel form. Oh, was this? I think it was. <laughs> I think you know very well who it was adapted from. We do talk quite a bit about the the differences between the film and the, and the novel. Correct. Yeah, later on. Which was written by Mr. Stephen King. Yep. And, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that he might be one of the most popular writers to have his works adapted to the screen. I would say. I mean, he's had a lot of stuff adapted to the big screen, the small screen, and then kind of like redone them all over again. I think there yeah. are there are multiple versions. Now we're versions. in like phase two. Yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah. Which is great because technology and effects have kind of come closer to catching up with his imagination. Yes, so, I would agree. Yeah. yeah, I mean, as of right now, he has 313 <laughs> credits on IMDb. Wow. And that's pretty much because he he gets a credit for every single movie, TV movie, TV show that is from one of his works. So in a, if, if you are somehow unfamiliar with Stephen King... Um, check him out. Check him out. So, I mean... This guy's laundry list of really famous stories that have become mostly movies I've um, picked instead of like TV shows since, yeah. we, since we do movies here. Sure. So we have Carrie, mm-hmm. Creepshow, Cujo. Mm-hmm. That was definitely one I saw way too young. Cujo yeah. scared me. Yeah, no, scary. Cujo is terrifying. Yeah. Christine. Uh-huh. One of my favorites, Children of the Corn. Yeah, that's never been... That one just freaks me out, but it's like it creeps me out in kind of an annoying way. The kids are just like insufferable. 
they're crazy. I mean, yes, they are crazy. Yeah. Um, Firestarter. Yeah. One of your favorites, Silver Bullet. I I do like that. That was based off of. Um, it wasn't a graph. It was it was kind of like a shorter novel called uh, Cycle of the Werewolf. I think. Okay. That that it was based off of. Yeah, but I do like that. We talk about. We've actually had this conversation a couple times about him. How sometimes his less horror ish stories are better adapted. Yeah. Like they're more su- successful, and I would say one of those is Stand by Me. Yeah, from the body, mm-hmm. I think from four seasons, a collection of uh, short stories. Uh, you might be picking up that Derek is a Stephen King fan. I don't have anything. Uh, this is just coming straight off the top of my head, so I could be wrong. I could be making it all up, but I think I'm right. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Okay. Uh, Pet Cemetery, which there was a remake of that recently. There were sequels and, and a remake. I think Reboots, John Lithgow whatever. was in the remake. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, he was in the remake? I thought. Was he not? Was he in the no, original? No, you might. Be... I don't know. You probably know better. Than now I'm. You're now probably... I'm just making it up. You're you're probably right, and I'm wrong because I'm not. I'm not like a Steve. I I'm not not a Stephen King fan. He always has that like uh, East Coast kind of accent, even like in the characters in the movies, where it takes place in that that part of the country, and then he even writes that accent into his characters. Dialect. So that, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Dialect. <laughs> Dial accent. All right, so moving on, uh, a couple more huge hits, Misery, The Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, 1408. Uh, I did add this show because I know you really liked it, 112263. That was really cool, yeah. I enjoyed yeah, that. I enjoyed that. It uh, had a great concept and start. I don't know if I loved the finish, but it was good. Okay, and then most recently, the It movies. Yeah, chapters were, one and two. Yeah, that are also just the newest incarnation of that particular story being told on screen yeah there was the uh tv series tv miniseries that famously had tim curry as Mm -hmm. as pennywise the clown which Mm -hmm. was an amazing portrayal of that character but overall the series has not aged super well Mm -hmm. especially you know as compared to the to the film version in any case well i mean it's hard to make that comparison because that was also from the 80s right the film or the i'm sorry the tv version it, it might have been it's just uh even even given that it's like comparing a tv series to a film something that came out a couple years ago yeah it just uh if you if you watch old scenes from the old tv series it's like holy holy shit this is this is kind of bad okay problematic no it's just bad, bad. <laughs> yeah. okay 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 gotcha i mean there's right. that problematic part of the book that wasn't it, it didn't right. carry over to let's anything not, on, let's on uh, let's let's move on from that because i know exactly what you're talking about yeah. so um all right so okay so the movie was adapted from a stephen king novel mm-hmm. and then as far as the individuals who are behind the actual screenplay of it so we have a writer director that we're talking about today stanley kubrick mm-hmm. so he's one of the credited writers of the screenplay and it's pretty clear that he puts it like he puts himself in that position and that sounds like a negative way of putting it but like he's a writer director on pretty much everything that he's done he is yeah so paths of glory uh he's uncredited but he was a writer on lolita dr strangelove or how i learned to stop wearing and love the bomb 2001 a space odyssey a clockwork orange barry linden full metal jacket eyes wide shut so this very much feels like what if the guy that made 2001 A Space Odyssey, what if that guy made The Shining? 
And guess what he did? It's exactly what he did. Yeah. <laughs> and he he played a pretty important role in in writing 2001 mm-hmm. a space odyssey as well so i'm not surprised that he had such a impact in like kind of the rewrite or adaptation of the shining because he he gets into it yeah i mean given everything that i have read about him i would expect nothing different in terms of him needing to have that kind of creative input into the script before moving forward with actually directing it you're not going to hand him something and say like let's make a movie and have him say cool yeah i mean literally kind of the the most uh glaring outlier to all that is that he was the director of spartacus and he didn't have a hand Hmm. i mean maybe there was something uncredited that he contributed to but as far as like we know there's no credit writing credit that he got for that movie but that is truly the outlier in his career so and from what i've heard too that was a difficult shoot for many people involved Hmm. um Okay, so the last person that I wanted to give a shout out to as far as writing credits is a woman by the name of Diane Johnson. Mm-hmm. And Ms. Diane Johnson hails from a town called Moline, Illinois. Wow. We know Moline. We do. We've been to Moline. We have. We have friends in Moline. That's right. So we want to give a quick shout out to our <laughs> great friends, Josh and Melissa. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I thought that was really cool too. And she's interesting because she actually, from what I uh, kind of picked up briefly about her career, so she was a novelist. Um, she didn't really do screenwriting per se. Okay. But... Kubrick wanted to collaborate with her on this, um, especially after he found out that she was a doctor of Gothic studies. That's interesting. Right? Yeah. So that's where her credit comes from for this. And I'm always a fan of women who dive into these kinds of stories because I think a lot of people kind of think it's like more skewed towards men writers and they would actually be correct. Um, But that's why you need to get more women into it. Yeah. Um, so like I had already mentioned, Kubrick was both writer and director on this and all those movies that I listed that he played a hand in with writing, he also directed. So I'm not going to repeat myself with that. Um, so moving on Mm -hmm. to cinematography and actually what's really, what I noticed when I was going through kind of the other main individuals who were involved in this film, we have a really big British crew. Interesting. Yeah, even Kubrick, you know, he was born in New York, so he's New Yorker, but um, seems like he had a lot of collaborative relationships with people across the pond. Okay. One of them being John Alcott, who was the cinematographer on this. So he also collaborated with Kubrick on Barry Lyndon, Mm. um, but some of his other credits... Okay, so just uh, to give you a heads up for some of these movies that are coming up, not just for him, but for other people, I just like put them down because I really love the titles. So he worked on a movie called The Beastmaster. Wait, you're not familiar with The Beastmaster? Should I be familiar with The Beastmaster? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely should. Is it should. an 80s movie? I, didn't write, might, I don't write down the year. It might be. It's a movie that, you know, again, if we're going to talk about movies that have not aged well well. that would be probably near the top of my list of movies that have not aged well but it's kind of like a um like an adventure type movie with a guy that can like see through the eyes of animals and uh, talk to animals i can't remember the name of the the star but man yeah okay all right and then some of his other credits are gray stroke 
Miracles and No Way Out. Ah. So, okay, so the editor, the gentleman who cut this film, he uh, is a man by the name of, <laughs> I don't know why I say it that way sometimes, but Ray Lovejoy. And actually, we have already talked about this gentleman. Have we he, now? Yeah, we sure have. Um, another Brit. He was the editor also of Batman. Oh, okay. So. Good job, Ray. Good job, Ray. If you want to hear a little bit about more about him i would recommend going back to our episode 14 wow you even know the number i looked it up okay i didn't know it off the top of my head <laughs> to be quite honest uh where we cover batman yeah so that's where you can hear more about mr lovejoy which is great last name it, it is pretty cool actually it's pretty yeah. cool so okay because i am able to skip by some of these people that we've talked about mm-hmm. um in other episodes that i like to kind of use that opportunity to bring up people we don't normally talk about so one of the individuals that I wanted to mention is the gentleman who did the casting, because I think this is a movie with really interesting casting. We kind of talk about that with Elise, our it special sure guest. It sure is. Yeah. So <laughs> another Brit. Um, he, okay. Oh, gosh. I hope I say this name right. James Liggett. 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 I don't Are know. Are you looking at it right now? I am. Yeah. I don't, yeah. No, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure where the emphasis is. But it does seem like he had a little bit of a of a relationship, professional relationship with Kubrick because he was on a lot of his films. Yeah. So he did casting for Lolita. He wasn't credited, um, but he has like an uncredited credit for 2001 A Space Odyssey, Clockwork Orange. And then here are some of those movies where I'm like, oh, these are just amazing titles. Okay, so he worked on a movie called That's Your Funeral. Okay. Another one called... The Satanic Rites of Dracula. Interesting. Right? That's a great title. Great title. It gets better. He worked on a film called Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter. There's a possibility that I've seen that. It sounds It's it ringing a bell. Sounds great. Yeah. Okay, listen to this one. Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, which is so interesting to me because apparently Frankenstein is not the monster from hell. It's Frankenstein and the monster from hell. Yeah, also, is it, like, the doctor, or is it Frankenstein's... Is it, like, the oh, monster... Oh, okay, okay, great point. I never See, know. I always... And I shouldn't I shouldn't have that default. Whenever I hear the name Frankenstein, I think of the monster and not the doctor. Yeah. So I shouldn't I shouldn't do that. So you might be right. Sometimes it, people get really nitpicky over that. I know yeah. I, I think just calling Frankenstein Frankenstein makes sense. Yeah. But uh, I just did it. Because it's uh, technically Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein's monster yeah. versus the other monster from, from hell. hell. So Hell's monster versus Frankenstein's monster. And then we come back to another Kubrick film, Barry Lyndon, which mm-hmm. he casted on. And then some of his uh, like kind of later credits are The Pink Panther Strikes Again and Revenge of the Pink Panther. Wow. Yeah. Which, okay, I can't speak for some of those middle films that I brought up, like The Satanic Rites of Dracula. But those other films, again, like interesting casting that helped to make the films what they are. So... Okay, so the last two that I wanted to bring up, again, because I think that they had such an influential hand on how viewers think of this movie. And the two people that I want to bring up are the person behind the production design and the art direction. Okay. So, and if and if there's, like, confusion about how those two differ, so, like, usually... The person who's credited with production design is kind of the person that collaborates with the director and uh, the DP to talk about how the film is supposed to look. What's a DP? 
uh, director of photography, Thank you. the cinematographer. So so those three kind of collaborate. And I mean, there could be other people involved, but like those three together are going to probably make the major decisions for how the film's going to look. And then the person behind the art direction is the person who kind of implements those ideas. Okay. So they're they're the ones that enact all those suggestions of like, okay, we want this and we want that. Like we want the carpeting to be this way and we want this to be this way. So that's how they work together. Got so it. one's kind of the idea person and one is the execution person, so to speak. All right. But there's overlap. So, okay. So production design um, by a gentleman, Roy Walker. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to, okay. So some of the films that I picked, I think, again, it it really demonstrates how the look of these films influence how we think about them. So some of his other credits include Yentl, The Killing Fields, Little Shop of Horrors, Good Morning Vietnam, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Uh He comes back to to Kubrick's last film, Eyes Wide Shut, and The Talented Mr. Ripley. I mean, of all of the ones that you've listed off eyes wide shut certainly has like oh for sure its own thing going on mm-hmm. but all of them in their own different ways the i mean whether also yeah, yeah and i mean whether it's very kind of stylized like little shop of horrors or it's supposed to kind of be a more believable setting like good morning vietnam like you're supposed to really feel like you're the you know so and even um the reason why i put down the talented mr ripley is because i think that has a really kind of iconic look to it so that is roy walker at least some of his credits I mean, I don't want to go too far down his list of credits, but also I would be remiss if I didn't mention that he was an uncredited assistant art director in the James Bond film, Diamonds Are Forever. There you go. So I did. Do it. Never, (laughs) never hesitate. Okay, so art direction uh, by a person... Do will you do me a favor real quick? Just I have a feeling that this is a gentleman, but the name always throws me, and I didn't do my fact checking. But the name is Leslie Tompkins. Less, yeah, less. So is yeah. it a dude? He he is it's, okay. So it's a dude. He okay, goes that's by less. Yeah. Okay, great. So less. Get this. The Shining was his very first gig. Holy shit! <laughs> that's amazing. Right. <laughs> like out the gate, like that's pretty incredible. Um worked it seems again with walker on yentl because that's another one of his credits and then among some of his other films national lampoon's european vacation one of our not favorite but enjoyable films of the jewel of the nile so the lesser of the two uh films oh, yeah. of that it was, but it was way lesser yeah <laughs> and then another kubrick full metal jacket superman 4 the quest for peace batman really yeah which one uh the first okay yeah Sleepy Hollow, Troy, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and then most recently, or among some of the more recent ones, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Cool. All very, yeah, very distinct looks. Oh, to for all sure, the, yeah. yeah. So, all right. So moving on to the individuals in this film, which, yes, there, there's like a fair amount of people, and we'll get to some of them, that have like really bit parts, but I think this might be the smallest, like, main, like kind of like... There's like four people yeah, that matter in this. Yeah. Yeah. That you really think of. So, of course, chief among them, Jack Nicholson, Jack Torrance. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, we've already talked about him. We have? Mm-hmm. Was he in something we covered? Yes. Oh. Are you not remembering, or are you just, like, giving me a... It's giving you a hard time. Okay, okay. We've already referenced this uh, episode number 14. Good job, Batman. Batman. Yeah, he's, uh, he's Mr. Joker. 
He is. So we're not going to go through all of his many, many amazing credits. But if you want to hear them, go check out episode 14. Again. Again. (laughs) All right. So moving on to his wife, Wendy Torrance, played by Shelley Duvall. Uh, So we have not covered her yet. No, we haven't. Are we ever going to cover the uh, Popeye movie? Maybe. Is it an 80s movie? Yeah. Let's forget Mm -hmm. it ever happened and just cover in this one. Oh, okay. Okay. I thought you were going to go a totally different way with that. Um, So among some of her credits, McCabe and Mrs. Mrs. Miller, Nashville, Annie Hall. Yep. uh, The aforementioned Popeye. (laughs) Roxanne. Yep. And Home Fries are some of her credits. And she does a great job in this movie. Like, I know that there's a lot of discussion that's been had about the quality of her performance but i think she does a great job i think her performance is exactly what stanley kubrick wanted Wanted her performance to be Mm -hmm. like i i and he pretty much tortured her to get it out of her yeah so i don't think that it's anything less than what he wanted after everything that he put her through exactly so if anyone has an issue with her performance you take it up with derek or stanley kubrick (laughs) you might be able to get a hold of me easier (laughs) And I'll forward that message along. So, yeah. To via seance or something since he's no longer with us. Exactly. Um, Okay. So the person that I think did the best in this entire movie uh, is now, now grown, grown up person, Danny Lloyd. But he was about a six year old when he did this, which makes his performance that much more remarkable. Um, What is really interesting i don't i don't think i've heard anything that his experience on the shining in any way influenced what he would or wouldn't go on to be but he pretty much was a one and done uh actor i mean he did uh another i think it was a tv movie yeah called will yeah the autobiography of g gordon liddy yeah um and then i think they you know did like a nice little nod to him by he has he has like a spectator uh credit for dr sleep mm-hmm. but he pretty much pivoted out of yeah. the entertainment and he's a science professor now that's so. awesome mm-hmm. yeah, yeah that's super cool so good on him okay we need we need frankly we need more of those instead need- of sad sad child actor stories <laughs> yes. yeah yeah I mean, unfortunately, it seems like the only happy stories are the ones where they pivot out of. I mean, without actual science professors, who are we as the general public Uh, going to look to when we want to ignore all of their actual guidance? So, you know. Yep. That's a whole conversation. It's true. Next up. Next up. (laughs) Scatman Crothers, who, what an interesting career. Uh, he really liked to kind of put his hand in a lot of... I mean, I, I when I hear that name, I think of him as a musician and yeah. a singer. So that's how I in, like think of him. And I didn't really realize the breadth of his acting career. I bet you didn't. I bet there was one credit in particular that led to a raised eyebrow, since it's something we will be covering oh, soon. Oh, yeah. No, I totally have that down, <laughs> specifically because of what we're going to be doing. Yeah. So um, he has a crazy, like, impressive IMDb yeah. page. And so, I mean, it, here's what I will say, like, and it's not in any way a negative thing. It seems like a lot of his roles in, whether it's TV or film or whatever, does have, like, a musical component to it. 
And this is kind of the outlier to that in some ways. And maybe there are other outliers, but like there's yeah. no like reliance on the fact that he is a musician or a singer, like has nothing to do with his role in this Not movie. So, yeah. um, and so he plays, and I know I was like flip flopping on the pronunciation of this, but Halloran. Yeah. Halloran. What's wrong with that? Okay. So some of his credits, Porgy and Bess, he was the voice and he did, that was another thing too. He did a lot of voice work. I noticed that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the voice of Scat Cat and the Aristocats. He was in, I did this for you, Detroit 9000. I, okay. I mean, I don't know what it I is. I don't do even you know, know what that is, is either. So. It just sounds bad. I I don't know. I could go either way. <laughs> um, he was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, mm-hmm. Chico and the Man, Bronco Billy. I did hear an interesting story. So I don't think it's like anything that's groundbreaking to say that like Kubrick... He was a very demanding director, and he was also, yeah, and he was also very famous for crazy amounts of takes. Yeah, yes. Like, I mean, really up to, like, 100 takes of something fairly minor, like. Someone's got to look at all those. Yeah, yeah. And so, obviously, that's going to wear on actors, that's you know, gonna wear on everyone to, on everybody yeah um like for instance uh i wrote this down i mean part of it is well i'll just really quickly put up this fun fact that um the here's johnny mm-hmm. scene it took three days to film <laughs> and they went through 60 doors oh now, my god part of that is because actually believe it or not jack nicholson used to be like a volunteer fire marshal and so he was going through the doors much more quickly than they ever thought he could make it harder so so i think that that was part of it part of it was just kubrick being kubrick yeah and so the story to go back to um crothers is that one of his next films like right after this one was Bronco Billy, which was directed by Clint Eastwood. And now Clint Eastwood is infamous for the exact opposite reason. He's like a one-take director a lot of the time. Okay. And so what I heard is that when Crothers did like his first scene for that movie and Eastwood was like, great, let's move on, he like started crying because he like couldn't believe that he wasn't (laughs) going to have to do like 80 more takes. That's amazing. And so I thought that was kind of funny. Um, some of his other credits, Zapped. Oh, man. That movie with Charles in Charge? Uh-huh. Yeah. Two of a Kind, The Journey of Natty Gan. And then what you alluded to just a minute ago. Yeah. He is the voice of jazz. That's right. Not just in the movie, but in the TV series. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Of the Transformers, um, the TV series. Then, as you said, the movie, and then also uh, the return of Optimus Prime. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. He was in uh, the Paper Chase TV series. I don't know what that is. I've seen the Paper Chase movie, which is like possibly one of the most overrated mm-hmm. movies that I've ever heard anyone recommend to a law student. Don't watch it if you're a law student. Okay. Don't don't waste your time. Okay. All right. Well, so for our remaining credits, we'll be going through these pretty quickly because like you said the people we already mentioned those are the four real main characters there and yeah there there are a couple that have pretty direct impacts yeah once we get into the movie they're on the periphery but um so one of them is barry nelson uh he plays allman so he's basically the guy at the beginning of the movie who's kind of explaining to well not kind of he's explaining to jack torrance kind of the history of the hotel and what would be required of him 
all I could think of when, and I thank goodness I finally figured out who he reminded me of. He is like a ringer for Steve Lawrence, okay, the entertainer. Um, some of his other credits, I mean, he did a ton of TV work. One of his TV series was My Favorite Husband. That's an interesting title. Yeah, right. And then a couple of his like film credits, uh, Shadow of the Thin Man. Mm-hmm. Which the Thin Man series, okay, so obviously not anything even close to the 80s, but a great series of films with Myrna Loy and William Powell, highly recommend. All right. Um, and then also he was in Airport. So, hmm. okay, moving on to Grady, the former caretaker who massacred his family and then shot off his head, hmm. to put it bluntly. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> he is put, played by Philip Stone. So, did you recognize him at all? I may have um, recognized him from a movie starring Harrison Ford. Yeah. 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 And and you know what's funny about that is when we were watching it, I mean, that was the first time I realized that. But I was like, oh, yeah, it's like I recognize the voice. He looks a little different. Yeah. But um, he has a very distinct voice. I mean, yeah. he looks he looks very menacing in virtually every second of the film mm-hmm. in, the, in The Shining. He looks less menacing in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. So, yes, that is the the film that I was throwing your way. Sorry to, about that. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm glad you did. And then some of his... And, like, all these people had... So, what so many people do and do really well is they... Maybe they don't have, like, an Indiana Jones-esque role that forever defines them and probably will... We have a two-hander here with, like, Indiana Jones and Han Solo for Harrison Ford. But, Mm -hmm. like, you know, a lot of actors and actresses, that's not the trajectory of their careers. But as I've said before, it does not mean that they're not working and that they don't have really fulfilling, very long careers. And that's what defines a lot of these remaining actors. But a lot of the stuff that they worked on, especially for some of them, if they happen to be more um, in, like, British cinema or British television, things that we wouldn't even necessarily be aware of. Yeah. but in any case, okay, so Philip Stone, some of his credits, I just really thought this was an interesting title. I'm like, what is this about? The man who had power over women. <laughs> I need what? to get a la- laugh out of that. Um, yeah, I have not seen that. Right. Or or heard of that. So uh, it seems to have had a working relationship with Kubrick because then he was in A Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon. Another interesting credit name. It shouldn't happen to a vet. Yeah, no, that's, it shouldn't. I agree. What happened? Name? I, I have no idea. Okay. He was in the 1978 version of The Lord of the Rings. Animated? Maybe. I, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Flash Gordon. Mm-hmm. And then, as you mentioned, Temple of Doom. Yeah. So, okay. So, Lloyd, the bartender? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I actually... I'll let you go through his credits, but I remember him much more from a different movie. Oh, okay. So I think I might know. What movie do you know him better from? I I remember him as Tyrell from uh, Blade Runner. Okay, that's what, yeah, Yeah. I figured. Yeah, so I have that down here too. And uh, same as some of the other actors that I've mentioned, he did a ton of tea work. Use my words, Anna. Ton of TV work. Ton of TV work. Yes, um and then of of all that work one credit that i thought was really funny we've talked about this before where people come on a show and they play different characters on the same show oh i love that yeah he might i mean as far as like 
actors we've covered so far, I think he might hold the record because he was on the TV show, The Untouchables, five times. <laughs> and each time he played a different character. That's awesome. Isn't that great? How many seasons were there? Oh, I don't know off the top of my head. Because if it's like one season, that's... No, definitely more than one season. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so finishing up with our last... Well, we have a couple more. So, Ann Jackson, the doctor. Yeah. Which, small role, but man... She does a great job of just having a complete non-reaction to uh, Wendy's uh, story about what had happened with, uh, with, with Jack and Danny. Yeah. And her just, like, completely flat reaction of, like, oh, shit. Right, right. I think internally she's like, oh, this is a very bad situation. There's a lot going on here. This woman's in huge denial about it. Um, Another actor that did a ton of TV work, and then I needed to name some of these credits because, again, just, like, really great titles. So one is called So Young, So Bad. (laughs) Listen to this one. How to Save a Marriage and Ruin Your Life. At the same time? All in like the, same the same title, okay. I guess, yeah. All right. And then The Secret Life of an American Wife. Interesting. Interesting titles, right? Yeah. Okay, so I'm very curious if you recognize this next actor. So, okay, very bit part. Um, his character goes by the name of Durkin. You probably wouldn't know that, but he's the guy that Halloran calls to be like, hey, I need... Um, what does he call oh, it? The yeah. snow... The snow cat. The snow cat. Yeah. So that's the friend that he calls. Mm-hmm. Did you recognize him? I didn't. Okay. I didn't. I mean, I know now who he is. Okay. But... Yeah. So, gonna name off some of his credits. So he was uh, in a film, and I just love this. So in 1974, The Black Godfather. Really? So in response, I'm guessing, to the one that came out in 72. Nice. I don't think it was just a coincidence. But yes, so the films that you probably there in listener land would know him from are the Rocky movies. Yep. So in the first two Rockies, he was credited only as Apollo's trainer. And then finally, he got his own name in Rocky Three, where he's credited as Duke. And, you know, he was in Rocky, Rocky Two, Rocky Three, Four, and Five. Okay, so I want you to... Look away, because I know you're looking at the credits. Don't look at the credits. Okay. Don't look at the credits. I'm not. I'm going because, back. Okay. I'm, I'm, yeah. Because I need I'm to, not even looking at it. I need to name this credit. Okay. Without you seeing it first. Okay. Oh, and he was also in Rocky Balboa. Oh, was that it? No. Okay. Okay. So he was in a film called Farticus. <laughs> Wait, what? He was in a film. What was the name of it? Farticus. I'm sorry. I didn't hear that correctly. Could you please say it one more time? <laughs> Just one more time, please. I want to make sure that this is all working correctly. Because it sounded like you said Farticus, which would be a goddamn bonkers name for a movie. So just one more time. I need to... Wait. Let me let me read you the log line. Okay. Of what? For what? Farticus. Okay. We're still on that. Okay. It's about an old man uh-huh. who would get the walking farts every time a beautiful woman enters the room. What kind that is of... The, uh... That is the synopsis of... When was this made? I don't know, but I was like, what? Was it before or after he was on an episode of Airwolf? Uh, I don't know. You know what? From the way that I have it listed, it was between Rocky V and Rocky Balboa, because I do it in chronological order. Wow, so Farticus isn't at as, as old as we would think. <laughs> what in the I hell? I just thought that you would really appreciate that, so I, I think had everyone, to bring that up. Well, I think everyone's going to really appreciate that. <laughs> thank you. We all thank you for Farticus. <laughs> So lastly, just really quickly, um, wanted to bring up the Grady Girls. 
So played oh, by yeah. sisters Lisa and Louise Burns. So um, both in the novel and it's really quickly referenced in the film, the daughters were supposed to be like separate ages, 10 and 8, but they got twins to to play the roles. And so, but it kind of works out because one of them's like a little bit taller they than are. the other one. Yeah. So you, they kind of look like, I mean, no, if you were 10 and 8, there'd be a much bigger height difference, but it's fine. It all works out. And they were in uh, some TV series called Kids, but like kind of very much similar to Danny Lloyd. They're just kind of doing their own thing. They're not in the industry. So I think they enjoy going to like conventions and that sort of thing where they get to talk about their experience, but they're not active in the entertainment industry. All right, moving on. All right. It's film synopsis time. Want me to lay it on you? Yeah. Let's see what we got here. Okay. A family heads to an isolated hotel for the winter where where a sinister presence influences the father into violence, while his psychic son sees horrific forebodings from both past and future. That's a mouthful, but it's pretty accurate. Yeah, they actually did a pretty good job, Yeah, I think, with kind of encapsulating what the film is about. And yeah, so I don't really have a problem with it. Yeah, let's see. I see. That all checks out. That yeah. all checks out. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we we always ask our guest about their kind of first memory yeah. of the film. Um, I know we all kind of mentioned that we saw it probably far too young than we should have, I, like I'm most gonna, movies. Yeah, I'll mention it every time we cover any of these movies. If the issue of seeing it younger than we should have comes up, I'm always happy to to say that because it's true. But as a blanket statement, I think growing up in that era, like parental supervision recommended, eh, just watch it. It's <laughs> eh, fine. It's fine. Yeah. Just <laughs> here's fine. here's what is interesting for me with this film is. I don't remember like sitting on the couch and watching this film as a child, but I know that I did because like I've mentioned, I used to go around the house saying red rum (laughs) all the time. And and so there's no, where else would I have gotten that from? Well, I'm going to say this shining. (laughs) I'm going to say this much. You better fucking have seen that movie as a kid. I hope so. (laughs) Otherwise there's like, some little spirit living inside you speaking through your index <laughs> finger telling you to say these things. Tony, and my friend Tony. What I want to believe and what I need to believe is that you, in fact, saw this movie as a kid. <laughs> you and me both. Yeah. But yeah, I just remember, and I do have memories of that. I remember saying that. I would say it in the voice. My dad didn't like it. No. Um, so I'm attributing that to seeing it at some point as well, a child. What was his reaction when you would do that? He would just be like, stop that. Yeah. He, he just not like hearing that at all. <laughs> um, so, and then I, of course, it would just make me do it again. So like, why? Like, I honestly don't have any recollection of like understanding why he didn't. Anyway. Oh my God. Anyway. So, okay. So we, we call this 80s movie montage, but there's not a montage in this. Yeah. There's no montage. It, there's in no this. montage. Sadly, I can't even come up with one that comes close. I mean, there's like the really extended driving sequence during the opening credits. And even though like we were talking about this um, as we were watching it just the other night, I don't think that would fly. I don't. Yeah, I don't. That was music technically, but it was it was more. It's not. It was just meant to 
kind of like raise your level of anxiety while everything's happening. Yeah, and I think know? indicate to the viewer just how isolated they're going yeah. to be. Like yeah. how long it's going to take them to do this. And or like, you know, and he mentions like, oh, it was a three and a half hour drive. Well, that's because he was driving an old Volkswagen Beetle. Sure, sure. Yeah. But um, so I understand why they did it. Um, like what probably they were trying to infer from that, but it wouldn't fly. But I think that's like kind of the closest thing we have to like a montage. There's really yeah. nothing else. I mean, the pacing of this movie just. Yeah, you wouldn't get one. Yeah, 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 it wouldn't make sense. So that intro kind of lets you know, like, hey, this is what you're in for. Exactly. Everything's going to be drawn out intentionally to make you uncomfortable. And it's going to be pretty effective. Yeah, it really was. And yeah. we talk about that with our guests. And mm-hmm. we're going to jump in in two seconds. I wanted to just really quickly bring up a couple fun facts. Let's do it. Are there fun facts associated the, yeah. with The Shining? Yeah. You know what has been happening lately? Yeah, fun facts with The Shining. Um, in some of our previous conversations, like those facts have kind of worked their way into the conversation anyway, but I just hadn't found a way to work this in. But I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was, some of these things were interesting. So um, to get Nicholson in like an agitated mood, they apparently... Fed him only cheese sandwiches for like two weeks, and he does not like cheese sandwiches, <laughs> so that did the trick. That that's the fucking weirdest way I've ever heard yeah. to get someone agitated. Actors, right? I mean, it's like feed me feed me cheese sandwiches so that I get. And that, as Lawrence Olivier probably would have said, or you could just act. Yes, he, I think that would be his response for sure. Yeah. Uh, so that's interesting. Uh, right? Cheese fun, sandwiches and no play fact. makes Jack a crazy boy. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, this this makes sense to me because I don't know how else they would have done this. The whole snowy maze thing, obviously not real snow. It was a combination of salt and like crushed styrofoam. Okay. So that's how they did that. Uh, I, you know what? I don't think I mentioned this when we were talking to Elise. So the actresses who play both the young and the old woman in the tub, the infamous tub scene. Two, three, seven. Yes. Yeah. Correct. They, that, that was like really their only film credits. They, wow. they didn't do anything before or after. That was it for them. So. I like that, um, during some aerial shots of the hotel, mm-hmm. you can clearly see ski lifts. Interesting. However. Uh, Jack's character specifically says, wow, I can't believe that you guys closed down. It seems like it would be great for skiing. And they're like, no, we don't have any skiing here. Yeah, I felt like the explanation. Well, we talk about that kind of. like The explanation just, is that there's too much snow. There's too much. Yeah, I'm like, okay. Couldn't sure. possibly clean this uh, this road off. Yeah, it's. I'm like, this isn't the 1800s. Like, I feel like you have capabilities to <laughs> do this kind of stuff. But they act like it's like it's totally out of our hands. It's not the least believable thing that happens in that intro. I mean, the whole, we talk about this a little bit more, but... So you're going to have one guy who's basically a teacher with no handyman experience that we're told of being in charge of the entirety of this massive, what I assume is a pretty expensive property. All right. And you're going to hire him upon site, one interview on closing day of the hotel. It all checks out. It was just a lot easier to get a job in 1980, folks. Right? We talk about that too. Um, Okay. And so last, I thought you would really appreciate this oh do you know i think he was ultimately very very happy with lloyd's performance i don't think there was ever any issue but do you know who was kubrick's first choice to play danny no it is a kid from another film that you love was it elliot elliot from et yeah no okay 
that's my he only. He probably would have been too young at that point. Uh, well, it was a two. It was two year difference. E.T. was eighty two, so maybe not. But no, think of a film from the seventies that you love. Oh, is it the kid from uh, Close Encounters? Yes. Holy shit, that kid's pretty creepy mm-hmm. in that movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe he's a totally cool guy in real life, but Carrie Guffey. Okay, is... he was Barry, right? In Correct. Close Encounters. Of the... Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But apparently the parents were like, uh, we don't want our kid in this movie. He's been abducted by aliens. He's been through enough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so it was a no. We don't need him to have visions of hallways flooding with the blood yeah. of the victims of whoever. Exactly. Yeah. So um, so yeah, I thought that you personally would appreciate I that one. Like that. So that's yeah. it. That's all I got for fun facts. All right. Those were fun facts. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate that. All right, so should we jump into it with Elise? Let's do it. So we are here, and we're super excited to have with us today a great friend of ours and a fellow film buff, Elise Budel. Hey, Elise! Hello! Hello! Thank you so much for being on the show. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Of course. And we're, I mean, we're really stoked to have you on the show. And we're also really stoked because you are helping us kick off Mm -hmm. our mini, I guess, Halloween series of episodes and so we're just like we're we're ready to go we're very excited about this we love halloween we've been ready since september 1st yeah (laughs) (laughs) how about you like i guess before we dive in like how what are your feelings on halloween (laughs) well i i love um horror (laughs) i'm not the biggest um halloween like costume person but i um definitely utilize the month to um, yes. catch up on all my favorite horror movies <laughs> that's, that's actually kind of how we see the holiday as well like we don't really do a lot of dress up no yeah. like it's not like that kind of celebration for us like, i don't we, think we're doing that this year either no no i don't think many people are doing that <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna make my dog dress up and then you know she can <laughs> she can take that on i'll take a picture post Boston on instagram and that'll best. be it <laughs> yeah, that that I do enjoy. And like yeah. little I do like the little kids dressing up. Yeah. Um, that is though how we like primarily celebrate the holidays. Like we just binge hard on Oh, totally. We get yeah. to the point where I'm like, I don't really want to watch any more scary stuff. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's like a successful run. Yeah. Yeah. You're actually like, okay, we're good for another year. Yeah. When you tap out, that's yeah. that's good. And then it's just full on holiday mode. <laughs> totally. Totally. Like, it's just, you know, tis the best season of the, uh, whatever. I think that, <laughs> that is what they say, right? <laughs> tis the best season for whatever. <laughs> Happy, Halloween. Happy Halloween. All right. So, The Shining. Uh, I guess, you know what? I'm going to jump in kind of. So, it is a little bit different, though, because, like, usually my lead off question for everybody with whatever film we're covering is about their first experience. Mm -hmm. And we're totally going to still ask that question, but because this is the first time that we're covering like a a straight up horror film, a film that has like really adult uh, Mm -hmm. content. Yeah, it does. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's 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 not for kids. Not for kids. And so... I am probably actually all the more curious about when was the first time you saw this movie, if you can recall, and what your thoughts were. It's so funny because I was actually trying to think of that beforehand. I was like, God, if Anna asks me this question, what am I going to (laughs) say? Because I don't remember. That is my 
honest to God answer, I don't remember. Um, I will say, <laughs> having prefaced, it's not for kids. I was a kid. Yeah. So um, I don't even remember like what my first takeaway was from it. Other than the fact, I will tell you this. Most people are most scared from the twins and, you know, um, here's Johnny and, you know, those kinds of um, things. For me, it was the hedge maze. The hedge maze was the most terrifying location. (laughs) I just remember thinking, if I were trapped in this thing, what would I do? And I don't know if that's just like, I need to dive deeper in that with therapy or something but But yeah it's just that mindless walking around not knowing how to get out of here and so that was kind of your first takeaway from it that's interesting to me because that's one thing I wanted to talk about is look unquestionably it's a horror film Mm -hmm. but what is it about the film that scares people and I think their answers to that are really interesting so for you initially it was the maze. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that there's so such a variation from for so many people because it is about, or there's so much different imagery in it that it can speak to a number of different types of people and what their um, internal fears are. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I love horror but I love, love psychological horror. Yeah. Um, and that's why this movie spoke to me so much. Um, and so the psychology of essentially going around and around and around and never being able to find your way out um, is, you know, in the maze, I mean, you could say the maze is just a reflection of the hotel. Um, because the hotel is the same way. Um, there's essentially no way out, especially in the snowstorm. Um, but so, yeah, it's, it's just uh, that fear of going around in circles for me. And the shot that I think is in the earlier part of the movie when, um, when Wendy and Danny are first walking around in it and there's this like <laughs> overhead shot where I was kind of looking at it thinking, yeah, I'm screwed. I'm not. Yeah. When not Jack gonna... is looking down, yeah. is that what you're talking about in the bird's yeah. eye view? Yeah. And you realize just how massive this maze is. And they yeah. never show how Wendy and Danny get out of there. Right. And you know, it's like the next scene, they're just in the kitchen. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my God, they, you know, but, um, I mean, my takeaway is that Danny kind of, I don't know, he has these he shined his powers and he yeah. he's probably like, just, he's the one person who's going to get them out as long as he's there because at the end he gets out too. Um, so my takeaway from the maze was like, why would this hotel have this really <laughs> <laughs> elaborate maze? That- why is this here? <laughs> yeah. Which- I mean, well, you know, that's not in the book. Okay, um, so that was so, what I was going to dive into next because yeah. I know that both you and Derek have read the book. Yeah, and the the absence of <laughs> that is of particular importance since it, it's not in the book and it has 
the endings are wildly different. Exactly. Exactly. The ending's totally different. And um, it, I saw just a snippet of something that Stephen King had said, because Stephen King um, very famously did not approve of this movie. Yeah. He, um, he did not think that the characters were a reflection of what he was trying to um, yeah. say for the characters. He thought that um, Jack was in the book is a much more softer um, side of humanity. And Kubrick was just like, nope, <laughs> he's the devil. And that's, um, that's the way it's going to be. Um, so uh, the ending of the book ends in a blaze of fire, whereas the ending of the movie ends in freeze, you know, it's, it's, he freezes to death. He freezes um, with that goofy expression where I'm like, what? It's, I, I will right. say, like, look, I don't know if it's just, you know, 40 years have passed and we along the way just become, j- just in the way that a 1980s film is going to probably be more sophisticated than a 1940s film. Um, since that time, I feel like that cut is like really hokey. It's just, yeah, it has not aged well. It, to yeah. me, it hasn't aged well. I mean, it's mm-hmm. fine. It's like probably shocking if like you're seeing it for the first time. I'm sure when, that was the mm-hmm. yeah, was but, to just, exactly. Yeah. But when you're seeing it successive times or multiple, you know, you've seen right. it once. It's like oh, it kind of is more jarring, but not in like a successful cinematic way, <laughs> right? Um, but I'm really curious. So like that's what I wanted to kind of dive into first. Is like so between you two being fans of Stephen King and the novel. What do you think of that? Because, like, you're absolutely right, Elise. Like, Stephen King, very vocal about how he didn't really jive with Kubrick's take on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you think is the responsibility of a filmmaker who takes prop- somebody else's property? Like, do they get to have free reign and, and do what they think they want to do with it? Or should they be more respectful I guess that's one word you can use here of the material and be true to it. Um, you know, it's a really good question. Um, I think there is a respect factor, especially with Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that Stanley Cooper took a twist on it that has resonated with so many people for so many years um, that I think he did do a service to the story. Um, and I think it is a story that is up for interpretation regardless. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really know the answer because I, I do have so much respect for Stephen King as an author. And, you know, if he if it's not the story that he meant to tell, you know, but yet it slaps his name on it and, you know, uses, uh, you know, his title. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think Stanley Kubrick did an amazing job. I think the answer to that question possibly changes if it's anyone other than Stanley Kubrick, because mm-hmm. this, this film is exactly what you would kind of imagine a Stanley Kubrick version mm-hmm. of the Stephen King novel to be. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember as far as like first impressions. And when I first saw the movie, I also don't really remember. I know 
as with virtually any other like 80s horror movie, I probably saw it younger than I should have. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I think it is comes just up something a lot like, on the yeah. podcast. <laughs> We're too young. Yeah. So that being said, I, I, I know that I've also read the book and I really enjoyed the book and I almost look at them as two separate like versions of yeah. the same story because they're so incompatible with each other otherwise. Um, I mean, I, I prefer the book, but I, I think I skew in that direction for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I think that like he, his portrayal of Jack or the way that they, they had Nicholson play that character as this kind of like cold drunk or ex-alcoholic, but not really yeah. ex, was it like five months. Okay. I don't it's know. It's been five months. Yeah. But like he, he had obviously been this abusive person. Mm-hmm. So yeah you know, he didn't really have far to fall to mm-hmm. turn into this like maniac at some point during the, during the film. Um, I, I mean the, the characters I, I've read some of what Stephen King has had to say about the characters and, and what you mentioned about Jack and he had even less flattering things to say about the Wendy character claiming mm-hmm. that it is perhaps one of the most misogynistic female characters. Well, that's- yeah. Ever ever I, on film. And I, I can't necessarily like strongly disagree with that. He's he's kind of right. right. Well, right. that's what I wanted to ask you guys is like how did you feel about the depiction of Wendy in this? And because I, I have not read uh I have not read the novel. So I'm curious how does that um change from between the novel and the film version of her character and the dynamic between the couple. I mean, it it feels like he, like Kubrick made characters that you would expect to see in a horror film that have had, that have these flaws and are going through these like horrific situations. And they're almost like caricatures. Whereas I think Stephen King does a better job than, than maybe just the general public understands that he, he does a great job of just writing real people like real families and characters that you can kind of relate to a little bit. And it's in some ways difficult for me to relate to some of the characters in the film because they're like, they're so far in like whatever direction Kubrick wanted to put them in. It's, it, it's. uh, Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I think that Kubrick, Kubrick and um, King have different um, kind of the point of the story is different for each of them. Yeah. Um, Stanley Kubrick, he, he uses visuals and um, he c- clearly has created um, an arena for conspiracy theories. And, you know, he's, there's all these open-ended things that he puts into his movies. Um, and so his reason for, doing this movie was different for from Stephen King's reason for writing this story. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's kind of a lot of what, where it stems from. My question is, since we've talked about some of the things that this movie has done wrong, possibly <laughs> what, what do you think it's done? What do you think he, he did? Right. What do you think? Cause you brought up the visuals and it is visually. Yeah. <clears throat> Gorgeous film. Just the oh, there's opening. so much he did right. Yeah. Oh my god, there's so much he did right. Um, I mean, 
he he has created a world that none of us want to go into <laughs> and yet we can't stop um observing and breaking it down because it doesn't make sense this mm -hmm. the 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 world that this story lives in doesn't make sense um so you know the layout of the hotel doesn't make sense yeah um you know the characters that come in and out you know it's all open for interpretation you know when you talked about the the imagery and the visuals that he creates i think he did such a great job with that and even Danny riding on his little power wheel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. The way he would come around a corner every single time. I'm like trying to like look around yep. something that I can't actually look around to see what's at the end of the hall. Cause I kind of, even though I know what's coming, uh -huh. I'm still like dreading, dreading it. I can like feel the hair standing up on the back of my neck as he's like riding his little big wheel around. Right. And I think it's not until the third time that yeah. you see him riding that you actually see the twins. Yeah, You know, and so even though you kind of know something's going to happen, you have no idea when because there are a couple fake outs <laughs> where yeah. you're just like, oh, OK, that was nothing. And well, while he's riding the the way that sound is used while yeah. you can hear the wheels mm -hmm. on the hard surface. Oh, yeah. And then go over the rug and then yeah. it's quiet. Yeah. It's it's a weird way to put this, but it's like a beautiful moment yeah. in mm -hmm. terms of like sound design. Um, and I'll go on record is saying that I think one of the best things that Kubrick did in this film was the casting of Danny Lloyd. Yes, yeah. he's brilliant in it. He's so he's so good. good. And I I'm always like really impressed with good performances from child actors because mm -hmm. I don't know where they get that from. Um, and I know that like, and I'm sure you came across the same information, at least that he was like, what, six when he, re when he did this film. Yeah. And so as much as I've heard a lot of negativity around how Kubrick normally treats his actors, uh, he was very protective mm -hmm. of Lloyd to ensure that, you know, this kid didn't come out totally messed traumatized up. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> i mean you know just the little voice in his head he was like okay you know and when he says red rum it's like where does that voice come from you know like well, the um, one i don't know if they played it up once he was cast but apparently it was um completely spontaneous on the part of Lloyd to use his finger oh, to okay. like in his audition. He did that on his own. That's amazing. And wow. so, yeah. So Kubrick was like, you're it. <laughs> um, but I do. And I mean, Danny is okay. So like, I don't know if this is like controversial statement here, but I think he does a, a even better performance than Nicholson. Cause Nicholson <laughs> is <laughs> Nicholson. Um, but he, you know, he's a 40 year old guy around ish at this point, you know, right. he's had a couple like really tremendous films under his belt. It's expected that he mm -hmm. can give this kind of performance. 
and and he's great. I mean, he's he's very Nicholson-ish <laughs> in this movie. Yeah, I mean, there's um, a type. Yeah, sure. exactly. Um, and so to have a six-year-old, even if he is being somewhat um, shielded from the mm-hmm. true nature of the film, because I guess he has said after the fact, like, I just thought it was like a drama. Like, I had no idea that it <laughs> wow. was a film. Yeah. And I guess, like... Um, a couple years after the film was out, he got to see like a heavily edited version of it. And so he still wasn't really sure like what the true nature of the film was. And it was only like when he was like 17 that he finally saw the entire film. He finally saw the naked woman in 237. Exactly. I watched the, an unedited version because it's on TV or on a like cable channel occasionally. Mm -hmm. And it's obviously edited. So like that scene was, drawn out way longer than I ever remember. And I'll provide an additional layer of full disclosure here and that I did eat a quote unquote edible before watching this film. <laughs> that scene take even longer to get through. I'm so jealous that you took an edible right before watching this. That was... Uh. A huge mistake. I questioned that decision several times during the the viewing. The young woman definitely takes her time. (laughs) It is a very slow walk. (laughs) Nicholson's creepy ass smile. In response, I'm like, no, man. No, this is not. There's so much, and like, look, I definitely want to get back to that, but I think that is, again, another thing that Kubrick does really successfully in the film is making the viewer so uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And not to, like, I just want to make sure that Lloyd, Danny Lloyd gets his, uh, his full due in being spoken of in in this particular episode because that I was telling Derek so we always we usually watch it just the night before we talk to our guest um and so we were just watching it last night and one thing that I told Derek was what what is probably the most successful part of this film for me but also the part that like literally makes my insides twist is the scenes between Danny and his dad yeah Mm -hmm. oh yeah so uncomfortable to see this father with such outright contempt for his kid Mm -hmm. and and the way that this little kid is very aware of the lack of a healthy relationship between him and his dad but he's just a six-year-old kid right and doesn't know how to navigate this and the fact is that we know as the audience that jack has um hurt Danny in the past very recently, you know, uh, five months earlier. It's what made him go sober. Um, But yeah, he pulled his arm out of his socket. So we are very, very like our heightened awareness of, you know, these two people together in close proximity alone, Um, especially that scene where Jack is on his bed, you know, just sitting there and Danny walks in and, you know, it's just, you're like, what is going to happen? Because Danny's also kind of on the brink of like, is he going to follow in his father's footsteps? Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen him in certain situations where you're like, oh, this, this kid's not right. Um, Mm -hmm. And is he going to tip that way too? Um, and a large so, yeah. part of that is because of the suppression that mm-hmm. and and if I'm understanding correctly, 
Um, because I did try to like read about what the, I didn't read the novel, but I read about what the novel was about. <laughs> uh, thank you, Wikipedia. And I was just like, uh, what, at least what it said in the description was that Danny, uh, like his parents weren't really aware of what the full extent of his abilities. Whereas yeah. in the film, they, at least the way that I interpreted it is that they were aware and they were like, you need to not talk about this. And mm-hmm. and show this side of you. And so if I'm understanding those differences correctly, that is just like another layer upon him that, again, he might have these abilities, but he's still just a six-year-old kid. Yeah. And it, you know, when you talk about the scene where he comes in on Jack sitting on the bed, I think probably the height of the success of this film is like, simultaneously you know that Danny's stomach's dropped because he's like oh god like he thought he was asleep anyways yeah Yeah. he just wanted to run in there and get something real quick right Wendy told tells him like five times please don't wake him up yeah right he shows up and he's awake he is you know he freezes and I think at least as a first if you were a first-time viewer but even on successive views because I did that last night like your own stomach drops Mm mm-hmm because of what you just said, at least like you don't know how the scene is going to play out. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I give total props to Kubrick for being able to direct that scene and just direct the scenes in general between Lloyd. And I mean, I mean, like I also, you know, I guess in contrast, I don't know if I would say I like the scenes between Danny and his mom, but um you know, they have a much healthier. Well, I mean, her, her entire thing is protecting Mm -hmm. Danny and Jack's entire reasoning is to kill his family. Mm -hmm. Um, So the stark contrast there just automatically, you know, you're, you're rooting for Shelly you know, and, um, but it, it's, it is a, a stark contrast. And, you know, I mean, I know that she has had, um, there's been a lot of, you know, bad press about, you know, what she, her performance or whatnot, but I mean, I, it is what it is. And I, right. I think, I think it's, it's brilliantly done. I think the only thing that she couldn't protect protect Danny from was her secondhand smoke. Yeah, man. <laughs> I, mean, like, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's a 1980 film. Things are different then, but she lights up a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. When they're at the table having lunch or breakfast and yeah, I was like, Oh, that makes me sick to my Yeah. And there's a scene where when she's talking to the, uh, was it a to doctor? The doctor or, and it's just, you just see the cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but I thought that was a really cool shot, you know, yeah. where she it's full concentration for her. The, re- um, the reaction of the doctor that was my yeah. going through these <laughs> yeah. like additional like you know aspects of their life and just seeing like you can just feel that doctor's stomach drop like, mm-hmm. oh God. Yeah, like big dropping moments. Yeah. Yeah, you're still with this man. Like that's yeah, you don't think this is as bad as it actually is. And I, I do, I agree with you, Elise. I think that Shelley Duvall did a really 
amazing job in this film. And I also, in particular, really love that scene because, I mean, first of all, I mean, she she is a woman very put upon. Like, she, this poor woman just, like, can't catch a break. Um, yeah. And I think what's interesting is they play out what I've heard before where if you're just silent, that other person that you're in a conversation with to fill the void of awkwardness will keep talking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what she does. The doctor just sits silently and she keeps adding to this story to try to justify the behavior of Jack. Right. And it's so uncomfortable because you know exactly what she's doing. Like she knows that it's not right. She knows that it's really messed up, but because the doctor won't say anything, won't interrupt her. She just keeps going. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I find that fascinating. I think that that was like a really well done scene. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something we all, um, can relate to we all mm-hmm. we all have that feeling of you know oh I've just said something bad about my spouse mm-hmm. I'm going to keep talking to make them know that's not normal that's not the way he actually is oh but uh, you know it's just you're just stuck um, so yeah again it's that uncomfortableness that we feel as an audience watching so I'm curious you know. I think we're all in agreement that we probably saw this as kids and t- too young to like really <laughs> comprehend um, yep. some of the bigger themes. I mean, as you have gotten older, I mean, has your view on the film changed as you've understood more about what it was about? Or like, did you have any kind of epiphany moments where you're like, oh, I never realized X, Y, or Z about it? Yes. Um I mean, I think if you watch it as a kid, there's no way that you can't watch it as an adult and just kind of have aha moments um, because there's so much that is underlying that you probably are just not going to pick up on as a kid. And, um, you know, I think um, theories behind it emerge Mm. um, where, you know, it's just what does this all mean, Um, especially because the last image that you see in the movie is yes. Jack, mm, yeah, <laughs> you know, picture. Um, yeah, is that picture on the wall um, from 1921. So, um, you know, everything is up for debate, but I kind of thought that this one theory that I kind of came or I've read about and is like, that really makes sense is that this is a purgatory that every, Mm. you know, his, his death, just, he relives the last, you know, three months or whatever of his Hmm. death of his dying. (laughs) So, um, I would say 1921 um, was when he, you know, when that picture was, but yeah. Cause the, uh, can't remember the name of the ghost that's that helps him uh, clean off his jacket. Who was oh, oh Grady? Grady. Yeah, he he uh, the the other caretaker of the hotel, yeah. right? Who tells Nicholson? He says you've no, always been. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that right. would uh, support. So that yeah, I mean, there. there's so many gems in there that you can just kind of piece together, and there's so many conspiracy theories about what what this all means but 
you know, who knows what's right? You know, um, I know that Stanley Kubrick has said on record that that photo suggests the reincarnation of Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then the last scene that we see of Jack frozen, it, he's frozen. We don't necessarily see him die. Could he be thought out and mm. reincarnated or, you know, there's, there's a million different ways to interpret the whole, the whole of the story. I mean, there's the, I guess the mystery of Jack and the significance of, of his image in that, in that photograph. There's the fact that I really don't understand exactly what the shining is as described by the head chef of the Overlook <laughs> hotel. Uh, I don't really understand who Tony is or who the woman in room 237 mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know who the kids are, mm-hmm. right? We know mm-hmm. we know who they are. They're the, yeah, the victims they're of- Grady's Yeah, they're Grady's kids. Mm-hmm. So was the woman in the tub his wife who he killed? I don't think so. I mean- He really got out of his league if- uh... It's, it's, <laughs> it's not well, the first yeah. time I've seen the movie. It's crazy that there's so much of the well, movie that I still, I kind of watch it and it's- you know, you get that visceral reaction to it, but I still don't know what a lot of it really right. is. Right. So what the cook says to Danny, you know, when they're just having their conversation over ice cream, um, explaining The Shining, and he says there are certain places that also have this hmm. um, where they can show you something from, you know, so my interpretation was that all of these are, things that had happened in this hotel in the past and they're being revealed. Um, and they're only revealed when people are alone. Um, that was kind of my interpretation of who these people are. That was my take as well. But I love, I love this conversation because that's like what I wanted to bring up next is I don't, I don't necessarily have a problem with films showing me something that I don't understand yeah. But I like talking about what what the possible like explanation is. And yeah, I just I mean, like, I guess it could be on multiple levels. I agree with you, Elise. Like, I thought that um the whole young woman, old woman in the bathtub could have been like a guest who had died there, but also I thought, um, and maybe this is me just reaching. But I thought because, you know, it goes from him seeing this, like, undeniably beautiful young woman that he is attract- greatly attracted to, to this literally, like, rotting mm-hmm. older woman, like, a commentary on aging. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that, like, several times in the film, he, like, tells Wendy, like, I've, like, wasted so much of my life with you. Mm-hmm. And so I don't maybe it's a very tenuous connection, but I felt like there was a connection there, just like a statement on uh, like life being wasted and that sort of thing. I, see I think that's completely no. valid. I, yeah. think that's, yeah. I don't the, think that's a reach at all. I think that's completely, well, you. It's, <laughs> you know, I think it's whatever you think mm-hmm. it is. And, uh, you know, it seems um, like a really good explanation. And I think that combined with, at least the viewer is given this sense that there is something nefarious about the hotel itself. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. They make the reference to the burial ground. They, yes. they, they, at least 
make us think that there is something wrong with the very ground that this hotel is sitting on. And so to the extent that they use this imagery of the young young woman versus the old woman, Jack going into the gold club. Mm-hmm. Gold room. And, and yeah. so there are all these things that are basically tempting him to, you know, bring him over to kind of the, the psychopath that he becomes when he ultimately ends up doing possibly what whatever was possessing this building wanted him to do or whatever this like ghost wanted him to do, or Mm -hmm. maybe he's just always been the caretaker. And so it's just him falling into this set of circumstances repeatedly over and over again, doing the things that he was always going to do. Yeah. Because there's a sense that he, um, he already is familiar with this place. He says to Wendy, you know, I feel like I've been here before. Um, Do you ever come someplace and just feel like you just know it already? And, um, you know, when he is going into that dining room, that ballroom area, he, he's very comfortable there. Everybody knows him and he, there, it's very seamless. So it does make you feel like he kind of was always the caretaker. He, Everybody knows him and he's comfortable there. He doesn't know why, but he is. I, yeah, I think that that's a great interpretation of all these different images that we're seeing. What I'm curious about is so that for me would explain why Jack gets to see what he sees in the film. And also, it, it, from the outset, I understand why Danny sees what he sees. I'm curious about what you guys think of at the very end when Wendy is running around and trying to find Danny and she has the baseball bat and the whole shabille. Mm-hmm. Um, I just made up a word. But, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> but when she starts seeing images, is it just because at that point the power of the overlook is just growing to the point where even somebody who doesn't have the shining or somebody who doesn't have that past with the building is still able to see some of these images because the one thing that I was like, Ooh, what does that mean? Is when she walks into the, you know, one of the halls and she just sees all of these skeletons from Mm -hmm. presumably that party in 1921. And I was just wanting to know what you guys thought of that. Like what, what did that mean to you? At least you can go first. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm thinking, um, I mean, it could be an overwhelming, um, you know, if you're there long enough, it's mm -hmm. bound to take over even the nicest of people or the most genuine of people. Um, You can't escape it. Um, So that could be it because for the majority of the movie, she doesn't see these things. You know, she she knows that there is a woman in 237 but she never go, goes to that room to see that woman. She, you know, she doesn't see any of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so finally, you know, it can just be a buildup. Um, and until she escapes, it'll eat her alive too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I could get on board with that. My only other theory is that it's possible that she just became able to see more of what the hotel really, really was as she was getting closer to the moment where she was about to die potentially. Mm -hmm. 
And so closer to that, like that veil between mm. these two different uh, realities, I suppose, she was able to get a glimpse at what was going, really going on or really on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's like, my other, that, it's a, comp- I just made it up right yeah, now. Yeah, no, I like, I mean, I don't know if they're mutually exclusive either. So I, yeah, I, I was just very curious about that because that was really interesting to me because I, I will say this much, even though um, Ullman the guy at the yeah. beginning who, yeah, is explaining to Jack the hotel and everything. Sure, he comes clean about the fact that Grady yeah. <laughs> killed, killed his family and then All killed right, himself. Look, let me tell you something. <laughs> yeah, so so he does admit to that. But I got the sense that he still was withholding from Jack. And there was just something about that character that did not sit right with me. Mm-hmm. And well, the other guy too. Like, oh, okay, sure. yeah. So that's the, the other thing. Something for sure. There's another guy there the whole time yes. who does not say a word, and he walks with them, showing Jack around, doesn't say a word, and it's like, <laughs> okay, who is this guy? Um, and so, of course, that sparks another theory: um, is this all mind control? Um, is this something the government is putting together? They're experimental beings being put into this location to see how they manage isolation or whatever it is. Um, because yeah, it's, it's very mysterious who this other person is that we have. There's no, there's an introduction, but there's nothing beyond that. No, absolutely. So I, from the outset, was like, they're not being totally honest with him mm-hmm. about what this whole place is about. I don't think they're being totally honest with how much work is going to be involved. Yeah, in that was care of <laughs> okay. So let's let's really quickly pivot <laughs> and talk about some of the more logistical issues. <laughs> that, that I mean, this place is huge. <laughs> Yeah, and Danny, or um, sorry, Jack isn't doing anything to actually do (laughs) take care of the hotel. He's there losing his mind trying to write. (laughs) The only Um, one doing anything. Yeah, she has like her little clipboard, and she yeah, (laughs) right. There's absolutely nothing actually happening in terms of taking care of this huge giant hotel. It's hilarious to me how they're like, yeah, so you're just going to be. And, and I'm like, why would you think that a guy who is a former teacher, now yeah. a writer, would have any ability to be a caretaker of of this place? Anyone watching this movie in 2020 that's ever tried to get a job is yeah. like, this is bullshit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> easiest interview ever (laughs) that is something that is pretty funny i feel like when you see uh any kind of like interview scene from movies like several decades removed we're all like it is not that easy (laughs) you go through like five sets of interviews you get like (laughs) or if it is that easy you're probably gonna kill your family probably gonna die (laughs) well that's where the mind control um conspiracy theory can come from is like why them Right. Why? What credentials do they have that make anyone think, yep, I'm going to go with you? Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's so many loose ends to to this movie that are just not explained. It's it, it is 
incredible to me that they <laughs> that they brought this family. If if you and I think you're right, you can't take it at face value that they're just like, yeah, sure, you'll do. Like there's right. definitely something. They showed going up on. on the day that the hotel was closing. Yeah. <laughs> and he's right. like, let me show you around. You have to giving him like an orientation, showing him how to operate the boilers that he's going to have to like turn on and off for multiple wings. Right. And I got to say this much. So the whole like to do with this, like apparently five month long winter storm. <laughs> like, yeah. Not quite five months. Cause they did have some time outside without the snow, but like this, like, crazy long storm that this area endures and i'm like okay obviously like yeah roads would be closed down that sort of thing but i would also think that like the amount of snow that they seem to be getting like when you think about like the pressure that puts on a rooftop like i'm just thinking about like all the logistical things of like what you would need multiple people to be there for like to to like deal with this kind of stuff yeah but even two adults and a kid are not going to be able to you know, shovel out and yes. do, a, uh, do, anything. <laughs> do anything. It's not a short story. It's a smaller, like serial kind of like mystery, murder mystery type of uh, thing that Stephen King wrote where I think it's called Funland or Joyland, something like that. It's like an amusement mm-hmm. park. And part of the plot is them breaking down the amusement park and getting it ready for off season. And just for that, just for like a relatively smallish, there are like several people involved yes, in this process. Thank you. Not yeah, one right. guy. Not right. one dude who, who has no background in plans it. Plans on writing the whole time. Yeah. Right, right, right. Who's not even doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's not even attempting. Not even so, trying. But, yeah. And then the other thing that I was like, this, this at least like uh, for a 2020 scenario would not fly for a couple of reasons. <laughs> the fact that like Danny is just hanging out during essentially an entire school year. Right. And doesn't seem to be getting any homeschool. Like he's just watching TV with his mom. Riding around in his power wheel. Yeah. So I'm like, that seems really wrong that they don't have him in school. And then also this poor kid, because they said that they shut down the hotel from, is it October 30th? I thought that was like a weird choice. I think it was, yeah. yeah. To to May 15th, I think mm-hmm. it was. And I'm like, so this poor kid is missing out on Halloween, Thanksgiving, <laughs> Christmas, Easter, if they celebrate. You know, like all of these holidays that mean so much to a child. And I'm like, how is parents, like even if you're not like, like let's, let's for a hot second put a pin in the actual physical child abuse. To me, that's also abusive. That <laughs> you're having this child be completely devoid of any peer interaction, any schooling, and any ability to celebrate any of these holidays that mean so well, much in the life of a child. That yeah. and we're, we're okay. We've already put a pin in the physical abuse. <laughs> okay. Let's put a pin in the isolation. <laughs> yeah. And then talk about the mental health care that he clearly needs. Yes. Because you, we all know how it is being stuck in isolation right now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we that, know yeah. how much this kid is going to need therapy. Yes. That was that was actually. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. <laughs> that was something that I mean, sure, it was like kind of gallows. Well, gallows humor is a little too dark, but like. Okay, let's all just like put it out there. We've all been isolating for seven ish months. Well, at the this ones point. of us who are responsible, right? Right. Yeah, Those of us exactly. Who there's actually a pandemic going on, um, and so you know, 
when again when Ullman was kind of talking about like yeah you know some people don't do so well with me oh you, listen hold on a second pal let me just tell you something you're gonna give me free run of this whole damn place with a stocked kitchen I'm good right. if you have enough toilet paper yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. We know how to stock up on toilet paper. <laughs> so I, what I feel confident in saying is that just a few months of that isolation would not in and of itself lead you to kill yeah. your family. There's got to be something else There's, going on. There, That is actually a very excellent point because it's like, we we're all still cool. Yeah. We're not trying to kill people and chase them down with an axe. Like right. Well, Derek, you brought up a very you know valid point earlier where... Jack doesn't have far to fall from where he started. We already know that he's not good when they first move into the hotel and you see his attitude change immediately from his interview to him actually talking to his wife and son. Yeah. Um, There's a stark difference there. And, you know, the story that Shelly tells to that doctor it's not resolved. <laughs> no. It's still going on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is clearly a guy who, again, maybe he was brought in for that very reason. There's not I far from him to yeah. fall. And how quickly is he going to get there? I think Jack is definitely the kind of guy that would uh, run into a Whole Foods with no mask and pick a fight with a cashier. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, what what would Jack do during a pandemic? That's a really good question. See who else he can kill. Um, I I yeah I I totally am on board. I agree with both of what you're saying. I mean that. So you bring up an you both bring up an inter- interesting point. If I could get my words out, and that and again, I know it sounds like I'm just like really trying to throw shade on Jack Nicholson right yeah, now. Do it. I think. I think he look, he did a great job because he was, like I said, very Jack in in this film. But to both of your points, he doesn't go through a huge character arc. No. Right. Oh, he does not. Yeah. That arc is more like a right angle. Well, yeah. Interesting. Kind of kind of flat and then straight down. Okay, yes. Yeah. I see where you're going with that. Yeah. Bad, bad, awful. Right. Right. It just gets worse. I mean, there is a way for him to get worse. You know, he doesn't start at murder, Mm -hmm. but you know, you can see it coming. It's there's no arc. There's, you know, he starts pretty high. Yeah. I, I totally agree with both of you. And so that is like, I don't want to keep going back and forth between the novel and book, but I'm curious, like from both of your perspectives, do you see more of a change in the novel version of Jack? Yeah. Oh, okay. for, for sure. I okay. mean, that's, that's one of King's, you know, biggest criticisms is in particular, the way that the Jack character is portrayed. And in the, in the book, the ending obviously unfolds in a different way, but he does get kind of like a moment of clarity in the book where he tries to tell his son to like, get away, mm-hmm. like get out of here. And, you know, that, that obviously never happens in part because of the way the the film ends as compared to the novel, but they are, they are different. Um, yeah. In the book, it's the hotel that yeah. is evil. Yeah. Mm. And you get that. I mean, it, it, you, you, you get, get that, that through the. You get that, but Jack, Jack is like the pawn of the hotel. Yeah. In the okay. movie, whereas okay. in the book, it's the hotel. 
that's in- that's an interesting choice then that Kubrick made. And I, I'll say this much: like I, I always give props to people who you know take on a role where they're going to be very unlikable. And I didn't like him at all. But it, but here's the thing. Here's what's interesting is that like he's still Jack Nicholson, so he has this like charisma to him, mm-hmm. and I think he yeah. knows that about himself. Yeah. And so it's probably not mu- as much of a risk for him, even at that time, to have taken that role because he's still Jack Nicholson. And so even if he's this like awful guy who abuses his child and is verbally and, and eventually physically abusive towards his wife. Um, emotionally withholding, like like all these different things, uh, you still are invested in his outcome as well. Like you don't just like write him off mm-hmm. because you know you just oh I just hate that character. Like he still you're still I'm not on his side, but it, it's an interesting play. That's why I think it's so um, critical sometimes with some of these roles, like the casting. And like I do th- I do think he was cast well in the film. I d- I think that he. He did a great job. Yeah, but. I mean, he's perfectly cast in the version yeah. of Jack that Kubrick wanted Correct. to put right. out. Yeah. Correct. The yeah. story that Stanley Kubrick was making, Jack Nicholson is the only person who could have played that. Yeah. So I wanted to, because we've been having a great, I know there's, we've said that there's like so much to talk about with this film. One thing that I did want to bring up was, I mean, Derek, you briefly brought him a Halloran. Halloran. Am I saying um, right? Halloran. Oh. Halloran, I think. Halloran. Halloran. Okay, the Halloran. <laughs> yes. I, yeah, I've always just uh, in my mind thought of him as the, the head chef. Yeah. 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 Head chef. Brothers. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. He's so, um, what he's calling, he's like, yeah, I just want to call and check on these. He's so he's like so casual. Polite, like, but he's also very polite. He's <laughs> like, well, that's really nice of you. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I really like that guy. Yeah, I, I loved him. And that's why, like, you know, I knew. I knew what his outcome was. So spoilers, everybody. If you haven't, <laughs> if we haven't spoiled the ending already, <laughs> uh, he dies, and and I do know that that is not the situation in the book. He survives. So I'm curious. I want. There were a couple different aspects of this character that I wanted to talk about with you guys, but I'm curious about. Do you think that that needed to happen in the movie version that he had to die? Hmm. That's a good question. I'm, and sadly, yeah. I don't, I don't have as strong of a memory of that. Like I remember reading the book and probably my strongest memory from the book is just the room mm-hmm. The I think the room two, three, seven had a more, it, it left a stronger two, two, seven. Yeah. Very that's different. A very different. That's just down TV the hall show, and it's a lot of fun. Regina King. Yeah. Yeah. When she was a kid. Sorry. Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, I remember the, the room and the presence in that room that left one of the strongest impressions for me on the book. And I know because I have read it and I did a little bit of like research before this, just so I could kind of refresh my memory, but I don't have as strong of a memory of, of that character, the outcome Mm. of it. So I guess my answer right now is no, it didn't matter. Okay. (laughs) And Elise, what about for you? I mean, I'll just say it just gives us another, another reason to hate Jack. Yeah. 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 I mean, it kind of seals the deal because he is such a good character, uh, the cook, the head chef, um, that it pains us, you know? I mean, it really pains us. So it just heightens that for us. 
in the movie, it lets you know that that this character is beyond any point of redemption, and he yeah. will in fact. There's there's no. It's not just a threat. He is going to kill them. And here's yeah. an example of, of That's a good point. now you can see just how far he has mm-hmm. gone mm-hmm. that he's killed this innocent person. Um, so I guess it, it plays a, an, an important role in the movie. And I think a lot of how the movie is put together is because you, aside from the fact that it's a Kubrick movie and like 10 hours long, <laughs> it's still not the same experience as reading a book. So mm-hmm. it's necessary mm-hmm. to condense a lot of that down. So maybe that's part of the reason why Jack's character is the way it is because we don't have the time mm. to go mm-hmm. through like a full arc where he goes crazy. And maybe it wouldn't have been yeah. as believable if he went through that process, yeah. but it's real easy to feel like this guy that I think is probably already an asshole is going to go even worse by the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also without that, there's no death, you know? Um, yeah, so yeah. a lot of people argue like <laughs> how much death should be in a horror movie. I mean, that kind of is the murderous scene mm-hmm. because other than that, uh, people are already dead, but yeah. Jack hasn't done it. Um, so it just, yeah, just adds that also. You need a body count. Those are really good points. Yeah. I think like you've convinced me of, of his, cause I was like, does he need to, does he need to die in this? I mean, why, why that change? But one thing that I was curious about, and I felt that this was, I don't know. It just sparked a question in my mind. So when he's talking to Danny and trying to get him to open up, open up about the fact that they both have the shining, uh, he says multiple times over about how this was a ability that other people in his own family had and how he would have conversations with his grandma without ever saying a word. And it does kind of seem to me that the indication is that it is something that's passed down in families. Hmm. And I was just wondering if either of you thought that either Jack or Wendy maybe did, I mean, I guess maybe the obvious answer would be probably Jack, but like, do you think that Danny did somehow get this ability from one or both of his parents or he was just kind of an anomaly in that and that it, it just was something of his own making. I think it was probably the Medicorians. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i don't know um i don't i don't know i think maybe jack had some sensitivity to the supernatural yeah as evidenced by the way that it like exerted this influence over him mm-hmm. so that's that would be my best guess as far as the i guess the origin of how mm-hmm. how danny got this got this ability i don't yeah sure. i kind of agree with derek i mean I, to me it it always kind of felt like he was an anomaly, mm-hmm. um, but it would not be far-fetched to think that it was passed down in some way from Jack. Um, you know, I mean, like we said, there's a lot of comparisons you can make to Danny. Um, like, is he or isn't he going to follow in his dad's footsteps? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, mean, I think it's up for debate question. for sure. Sorry, I, I was going to ask you, have you seen or read Dr. Sleep? You know, I have not. Yeah, n- neither have we. either of us. So I, I feel like some of these questions are out there or the answers to these questions Maybe. are out yeah, there. Yeah, that's actually, 
a, a very fair point. Yeah. <laughs> We're like yeah. talking about these things that some listeners Danny, are like, Avi. Danny grows up to look just like Obi-Wan. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I can't believe you brought it back to Star Wars. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, I think that that, yeah, I don't know why I just never ended up seeing that movie, but um, but maybe I will now. <laughs> I, now I feel like I have to. Yeah, I, I mean, probably will. I guess I just... Um, how do I put this? Like sometimes films are just like made in an era and they should stay in that era. And the story doesn't need to be continued 40 years later. Mm -hmm. And well, you would hate Stephen King then because he would disagree strongly. (laughs) Fair. And you know what? (laughs) I can't, I'm not going to argue with Stephen King, but like, and it's kind of like, we talked about this um, on our Ghostbusters episode with our friend Ed, because look, I'm willing to give it a shot. Um, I had a very different opinion of the female-led Ghostbusters because it was its own thing. And and so I was, like, really excited to see that. Um, And maybe I even would have been more excited pre-seeing the teaser for, you know, it was supposed to come out this year for obvious reasons it didn't. But it's the same idea, you know, now we're 35 years, 36 years after the original Ghostbusters. Mm -hmm. And... At least what I picked up on in the in the teaser felt really unsettling to me as far as like tonally, um, how different it it was from the original. And so I think that's always been my fear with when they have these huge gaps between yeah. films. And well, I yeah. think that's why I never gravitated towards seeing Doctor Sleep. The the problem I mean, the the tonal issue would be their if it had been made five years later, unless it was made by Kubrick, which it probably wasn't ever going to be based on King's, yeah, you know, opinion of, of the shining. Mm-hmm. And a lot of his criticism of the shining came out most recently because of how happy he was with how Dr. Sleep turned mm, out. Okay. So while there might be this difference in just like the look and feel of the two films where you're like, is this even a sequel? Cause it feels like it's in a different universe. Mm-hmm. I think Dr. Sleep might be more faithful to the original like story as King had envisioned it. Okay. So. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, This podcast sponsored by Dr. Sleep. (laughs) Sponsored by Stephen King. (laughs) I wouldn't say no to that. I mean, mean, Stephen King holds a soft spot in my heart because he's a Red Sox fan. (laughs) Oh, that is so funny. Well, yeah, you guys are East Coasters. Yeah. He's from Maine. Yeah, so that's... So many of... There are a couple books where the entire story is, like, it, it goes back to, like, his... Kind of his experience of, like, being a fan of baseball. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Definitely. So he's a big... Yeah, he's a big sports fan, big Red Sox fan. Yeah. I like him anyways. Well, you... You <laughs> East Coasters... I say that as a bit... I, I love you. We have, yeah. we, have, we have beloved family that are East Coasters. Um, I... I think you guys have a like immediate leg up because it is the oldest part of the country. And so yeah. like the times that we've gone to visit, you know, like, I don't know what this is going to say about me, but I'm fascinated by East coast cemeteries. It's got and a lot of history. Yes. Yeah. It is so interesting to go through and just see these really ornate and, and it like kind of blows my mind when you see gravestones that are like from the 1700s. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's insane. And so all I'm saying about that is that Stephen King had like an inherent advantage, I think, <laughs> in terms of like, I mean, look, this is not to take away from his obvious immense talent, but like he 
it seems grew up in an area where it was like fodder that for that. Talent was right. at one point in his career, perhaps enhanced with pharmaceuticals, but that is what it is. He's very honest about that. <laughs> he is. Yeah. yeah. He's very for honest sure. about I mean, how he was addicted. Anyone that's ever read it knows that yeah. there's stuff that would never have been written yeah. by someone. No yeah. kidding. Uh, so I think that is another example of a recent theatrical version of one of his stories where he's he's pretty happy with it. Both the success, at least for it, chapter one. I don't know what his thoughts are on chapter two. Um, yeah, I wonder. But yeah, the the older King movies, I think he's always been more critical of than some of the remakes, with the exception of The Gunslinger, which I know he also didn't like. But his his imagination just sometimes is so out there, it's really hard to capture it on film. And I think yes. if anyone was going to, Kubrick would be the person to do that. It's just that his imagination is so out there. He essentially <laughs> yeah. just like, I love your story, Stephen. Here's how I see it. I feel it's you like know? magnets repelling each yeah. other. It yeah. looks like you have two geniuses. It's like, ugh, I don't know if that's going to make for a great combination. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. Okay. So welcome to our podcast on Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, we could go on and on and on. Well, on that note, this has been a great, like, thank you so much, Elise, for being part of the show today. Oh we God. had such a great time. Oh, I really enjoyed myself as well. Good. <laughs> that is, that is the goal. Movies. <laughs> we don't want this to be a podcast that makes you feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> No, this was fantastic. It's, it's always, I mean, always super fun to talk about like horror slash scary films, but especially with somebody who really appreciates the genre and yes. also has like an underlying love for like the material separately from even just like the film that it, it was made into. So this has been a really just great chat. And like I said, I say this every single time, our guests always knock it out of the park. They True. always, yeah. Just like, oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. Of course. And I mean, we don't like have to wait until next Halloween, but like open invitation. We'll, we're always happy to have you on the show. Well, we have oh. 2000s movie montage and cover Dr. Sleep. <laughs> we know who to contact. Yes, I'll let you know once I've seen that movie and we can definitely go get that one. Part Perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, take care. Thank you. Thanks, guys. And so that was our fantastic conversation, as always, with our special guest, Elise Boudel. And yeah, I mean, like I've said before, it's always really cool when we get somebody on the show who has a really special love for the film that we're talking about. Yeah, it was. And it was also, I mean, a lot of people have read The Shining, but it was right. good to mm-hmm. be able to kind of go through some of the comparisons because they are both great in their own ways. I mean, I have my preference just because I usually lean more towards the the original source material when mm-hmm. it's a book. But but yeah, it was good to talk about some of those differences and how Kubrick really just did his own thing. Yeah. Yeah. So call the action. <laughs> yeah. Uh hmm. I mean, what would, it, I, what would it be for this? Okay, so like just off of like what I personally would be interested in, I would love to hear if somebody has had like a creepy experience at like a hotel or something like that. I think that's 
interesting. That's a good one. That's a good one. We actually stayed at a hotel in San Diego one time that was That's purportedly right. haunted. Yeah, and actually, okay, so this is nothing to do. Well, yes, sure it does. It's periphery. Oh, um, oh, okay. When we were checking out, and yeah. I was like, so I jokingly told the guy at the counter, like, oh, we didn't have any haunted experiences no or anything that we were like aware that. of. And apparently, in the middle of the night, a different couple staying at the same hotel like asked to be moved to another room because they were having like weird things happen and what yeah you remember you were right next to me though right you know what i'm talking about i don't remember any of this you don't remember that come on okay i do yeah you do and and of course i was like what room was it and the guy's like well i can't share that information so i feel like we got you know not our full like we didn't get what we paid for i think those people are planted there just to say that to encourage us to stay again Maybe it's possible. You're very cynical. I am. Yeah. Um, but I would love to hear that if somebody, I mean, like you, I know that we talk about like, oh, we got to go stay on the Queen Mary and. Yeah. I, I mean. We've seen way too many videos of people. As, as a total aside. Yes. If you go on YouTube and look up people <laughs> staying in haunted areas of the Queen Mary, it's quite the rabbit hole that you may go down. There's lots to look at. You may regret Not all deeply. Quality. Yeah. You might regret the time that you've lost. Exactly. So my recommendation is to not do it or do it sparingly. <laughs> Some of them are, there's a really good prank one. I won't say any more than that, but there's a the really- The prank one was amazing. Really great prank mm -hmm. one. Okay. So I guess that's our call to action. Um, Let us know but, about creepy experiences you've had in hotels. Exactly. And so whether you want to tell us that or you just want to say hi. Tell you, us about conversations you've had with family members without ever actually speaking out loud. <laughs> It's another one. Yeah. Do you do you have the shining? Yeah. Let us know. <laughs> if you have the let us know, but just let us know by shining it to us. <laughs> but we don't have the shining, so we won't we won't hear them. If you shine hard enough, I think we'll get it. <laughs> I don't know if that's how it works. I think it is. All right. So you can get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's the same handle for all three. Mm -hmm. It's at eighties montage pod eighties is eight zero S. Mm -hmm. It sure is. Okay, so yeah. sneak peek two weeks from now. Yeah, um, what is it? It's another Halloween movie. Okay, who made it? Well, if I tell you who made it, you're going to know it who's right away. It? If I tell you who's in it, you're going to know it right away. <laughs> <laughs> um, what year was it made? Okay, I'll just tell you who made it. Is it Beetlejuice? Yes! Oh. Good job! <laughs> Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Oh, God damn it. Now he's going to show up. That's okay. Yeah. And we're also alive, so it doesn't matter. That's a good point. Maybe you can help us with our neighbors. Oh, maybe. Yeah. All right. So, yes, very excited for that. We have another fantastic guest lined up to talk to us about that film. And that's about it. So tune in two weeks from today. And thank you for hanging with us today. We'll talk to you then. Bye. Bye.